every tech company starts out with one idea and they probably come to the map, get on the map because of one good thing that they do. But the great ones actually endure and they endure by constantly challenging themselves, constantly adapting and constantly pointing to the future and directing themselves to change. If you don't do that, right, and you just sit on your laurels with the one thing that you've done, then eventually you will fail, right? And there's a number of tech companies that have gone down that route, right? They're like, you know, they're like a shooting star, they come up, they do great for a little bit and then they're gone, right? Then they're uh, written off. Hi there and welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds Podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, John Marks Lima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital world. Great Business Minds is brought to you by Portman Partners, the premier executive search firm for the digital infrastructure industry. With over 50 years of experience, no other firm can match the knowledge, discretion and connections with the best top-level talent in the sector. So are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Contact Portman Partners today on www.portmanpartners.com And then on to our episode, this week we are joined by cricket and tennis player Rajiv Hamaswamy, who is also an accomplished Indian entrepreneur and Chief Executive Officer of American cloud computing company Nutanix, a role that he took on during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, but more on that later. He joined Nutanix from VMware, where he served as Chief Operating Officer of Products and Cloud Services. Prior to this role, Rajiv led VMware's networking and security business, one of the fastest growing units in the company, as Executive Vice President and General Manager. Before joining VMware, he served as EVP and GM of Infrastructure and Networking at Broadcom, where he established Broadcom as the leader in data center enterprise and carrier networking. In his prior general manager roles at Cisco, he led multi-billion dollar product lines in switching, data center and storage, and optical networking. Early in his career, he held various leadership positions at Nortel, Telabs, and IBM. During his student years, Rajiv earned his B.Tech in Electrical Engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology and his Master's and PhD in Electric Engineering and Computing Science at the University of California in Berkeley. He is also an Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers Fellow and holds 36 patents, mostly in optical networking. And he joins us now from his home in the sunny states. And Rajiv, welcome to the GBM podcast. Um, it's quite an exciting time to be in the industry. But let's talk, before we get into the industry itself, let's talk about your journey um, towards where you are right now. So tell us about where did you come from? Uh, what's your background and how did you get into tech and then especially into the cloud space? Sure, and, and great to be with you today here on your podcast. Uh, so I've been in tech all through my career. Yeah, I started out as a, as a school kid having a keen interest in math and science, which naturally led to an undergrad degree in engineering uh, in India. Uh, and then I came here to the US for my graduate studies uh, and I got a PhD and uh, started out my career in tech, of course, as, uh, as a researcher. And then uh, over time, you know, I moved from being a researcher to a developer, to a manager of people, to a business leader across a number of industries uh, in tech. I've been, yeah, I started out my career in optical networking uh, and then moved into uh, Ethernet switching and campus switching and then data center and storage uh, and then to chips and then 
then to software and cloud. So the last five, six years, actually now probably seven years have been really in software and cloud uh, uh, before Nutanix I was at, uh, at VMware. And it's been a natural progression. You know, as the industry has evolved, uh, I've evolved with it as well. Hmm. No, that's interesting. And what you said is quite familiar with the other, some other executives in Silicon Valley. Um, it's engineers coming from India who have the brightest minds um, in the world and they take over the valley and they build these companies, these amazing companies. I mean, we've got, of course, we've got Nutanix, we've got Google, um, NetApp, we've got all that. So Google and NetApp is by the same twin brothers as well, which is quite fun. Um, so we've got all that. But uh, you have, you've actually mentioned your school in India. Uh, one of the questions I like to ask people is who, have inf who has influenced you um, over your career, and especially in those younger ages, younger years, um, where life experience really shapes you for life, really? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I'll go back in time here. So when I was an undergrad student, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do after. You know, I knew I wanted to do engineering. I picked electrical engineering uh, because I thought they had broad applicability. And then within that, as during my undergrad years, there were a couple of professors, of course, who stimulated my interest in getting into networking and communications as part of electrical engineering. And those professors had, you know, they they had an, uh, an oversized role in getting me to do uh, go to grad school in that area, right? So I was in networking, and that's what I did my grad school, in, and and then for many years I worked in networking. Uh, so it started there, but then I would say, as in my career, especially early on in my career. I was very lucky to have worked with some stellar people uh, as my teammates and also to have a great manager and mentor. My very first uh, job outside of school was uh, at IBM Research. Mm. And what a great place it was back then. Uh, great team. We were just starting out a group in optical networking. And my manager was a, was a, a senior scientist, right? He'd been, he'd been there. He was an inventor. He's done a lot of great things. And he was in his uh, mid 60s, and here I was in my 20s, finishing up my degree and joining him. And what was his name? Sorry. His name was Paul Green. Paul Green. And, uh, and for, you know, he was a guy, for example, who invented the receiver that sits in every cell phone today. So oh. when he brought, you know, he, he, he had a lot of contributions. He mapped the surface of Venus, he built the very first uh, spread spectrum secure system out there for the US military. So. And he had done a lot of things in his career already before, you know, and this was, he was at the tail end of his career and I was at the beginning of mine. And he became a mentor. He became a friend. Uh, he opened up so many doors for me. And as a result of that, I was able to grow fairly quickly uh, through. And, and then we remained friends, uh, you know, for over 30 years till he passed away uh, a few years ago. Uh, I was just lucky. Uh, and, and that continued further along in my career. I was lucky to have great other mentors as well. Even later on in life, where you know, I started as a technical guy, and uh, one of my managers uh, along the way at Cisco, Jayashree Ulal, she's now the CEO at Arista, uh, took a chance on me and made me a general manager. So here I was, you know, I was a CTO for the group, and then she, you know, took a chance to make me a general manager for this optical networking group at Cisco, and that led me to a career switch. Right, her trust in me and and uh, you know, taking a chance on me to go take on this kind of a role, help me switch from being a technologist and a technical leader to a business leader. Uh, so that was another, I would say, turning point for me. And since then I've been a, a business leader. Mm. Uh, okay, that, that brings to mind two um, follow-up questions. Um, first, I'm gonna ask about taking the shot with someone. So the fact that she gave you a chance um, to become a general manager, which then kind of took you to, towards the journey that you're in now. Um, do you think young people get enough chances like that? Do you think 
um, leaders, especially in the Valley, but leaders really, they have the guts to bet on someone like she betted on you back then. Um, or do we need to see that more? Well, not everybody has it handed to them, but I would just say there's an equal onus on you as a person to go manage your career, right? Don't count on, you know, I was lucky to have somebody who helped me, great. Hmm. But you have to create them, right? You have to go seek them out. It just doesn't, if you sit uh, on, uh, you know, it's not gonna happen, right? So I would say there's equal responsibility on both sides, right? Uh, in terms of, you know, you as a mentee and somebody else as a mentor. So yes, I mean, there's lots of examples of people who have taken a chance on, being, uh, on others and given them opportunities. And I try to do the same. In fact, one of my fundamental philosophies is, yeah, make sure you hire good people with potential and give them the rope. And don't be afraid of being challenged and don't be afraid of hiring people who you think actually will be better than you. Because those people, if you give them the rope, they're going to you know, be super successful. They're going to be very happy and you will be successful because of that. Uh, and uh, I think that's a fundamental thing that uh, it goes both ways, right? It helps you as a mentor and it helps uh, the person being mentored. Yeah, because he showcases the culture as well of the company um, and the person behind it and how good that leader is towards um, his employees. But um, so then my other follow-up question was, how do you kind of characterize, describe your leadership style? Yeah, I think I have a set of philosophies that uh, I, I've developed over time as a leader. And I don't claim any of these to be original. Uh, in fact, I've really learned by listening and hearing uh, with, uh, with other leaders who've been around me. Hmm. Uh, so I think the first, first of those principles was really, I think, you know, try to build the best team you can, uh, hire people who are better than you, uh, give them a lot of rope, enable them to be successful. Because if they are, they, they're gonna make, very selfishly, they're gonna make your life easier. They're gonna make you more successful and you can go off and do more things as a result of that. So that's a, the first principle. Uh, second for me is be transparent, right? Say what you're gonna do and do it. I could call this transparency, I could call this integrity. Uh, but that's super important. Uh, that's the second. Third for me is uh, be decisive. Uh, there'll be lots of times where things aren't clear, right? Usually by the time of, uh, something comes to your attention, it doesn't really have a clear answer. If there were a clear answer, I think somebody below you would probably have figured that out and done it. So a lot of times you're going to have to make decisions with based on the data that you have, and it won't be a perfect decision. But that said, you need to know when you have to make a decision and do so actively rather than let things take a default route. Mm. And don't be afraid to change them, right? You won't be right all the time. So maybe you know, you'll be lucky if you're right 70% of the time and I don't claim to be right all the time. But then down the road, you know, if you think that that's not working, don't be afraid, don't be dogmatic about it. You know, be willing to adapt and be willing to change. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's another philosophy, right? Uh, I would just say, perhaps the last couple of things that I would just say is, you know, listen to, listen more than you talk. I, I mean, we all have a tendency to talk a lot. I am talking right now, but uh, listening is actually even more important. And also listen to your harshest critics, mm -hmm. right? not just to the ones who are patting you on the back, but listen to the ones that, who are giving you feedback and uh, hopefully constructive feedback, because they're the ones that are going to make you better. Uh, uh, right. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's that, that's, that's super important. So these are some of the things I've developed and they get embodied in my leadership style. I, uh, I also tend to be fairly clear about goals and uh, priorities of what we all need to get done as a team, setting those goals appropriately and making sure that the entire organization is aligned and then we go off and go make it happen. 
Hmm. No, I, I totally agree with you. And I think you've raised some really good points around, especially um, giving people some ownership of their work, um, walking the talk, if they can become a new thing. Um, I, I really agree with that one, especially that one, so many people say so many things and they, they just don't follow up with, with anything really. Um, and the making decisions as well is quite important. But uh, I was also going to ask, I mean, we are, we are talking on summer solace days, so it's the longest day of the year. Um, this season usually brings with it a lot of games around crickets and tennis, and I know you're a big fan um, of those two sports. Um, how would you say they kind of influenced um, you as a person? What's your relationship with those two sports and what have you taken from them and embedded in, into the way you do things um, yeah. in your um, business career? Yeah, you know, I was a, a singles tennis player. Now I play doubles and I'm a cricket fan. Uh, I don't play much <laughs> anymore at all, right? But they've, they've, there's a number of life lessons you, you can take away from those. Uh, and for me, uh, you know, doubles, tennis, cricket are all team sports. So you win or lose together. Mm. So what's super important, therefore, is to build the right team and work together to drive results. But at the same time, as you do that, individual performance counts as well. Right? You have to play your part for the team. And that means you need to focus, you need to work hard, and you need to adapt constantly with every one of these games. Right? You have to adapt. Uh, you, know, you can't just play the same game all the time. You have to adapt based on the opponent and what the conditions are and, and adapt. Uh, and finally, with every one of these, mental fortitude is as important as physical fitness. Uh, when my you know, kids were playing competitive sports, my daughter was a competitive tennis player as well. Uh, yeah. I found that again, more and more of this, right? everybody's physically fit and they're trained, but that mental fortitude is what allows you to have the grit to go fight and fight all the time and succeed. And, and sometimes really just to even overcome, overcome those critics as well, which can then help you grow as a person, um, not, not just in the sports. Absolutely. Um, and we've seen a lot of those um, adrenaline rushes doing amazing things. Um, with human beings um, over the years, over the, the over history. Uh, but um, Rajiv as well, so now that we've kind of got to know you a little bit, let's talk about how you process things and how you deal with things. So for, my first question will be, what motivates you in life? Um, what keeps you motivated to get up in the morning and be like, oh, here we go, we're going to do this again um, or differently, I don't know, but you'll tell me if it's again or differently or not. But what, what motivates you to get out of bed every day? Yeah. See, first of all, I, uh, I'm thankful for every day here, right? I've seen uh, a lot of ups and downs uh, and every day, you know, I'm thankful. In fact, one of the, the, the books that's my all-time favorite book is, uh, is this Book of Joy, right? Which is a conversation between the Dalai Lama and uh, Desmond Tutu. And, and, and they talk about how to, to have a positive attitude, right? Uh, and think about the fact that you are very fortunate and other people actually are not as fortunate uh, as you are. So, so for me, I'm thankful for every day here in my life. And I wake up thinking about, okay, you know, look, let me do my bit to help make the world a better place. And, you know, my father used to say, uh, if you can help others do it, but at the very least don't do any harm. Right? And, and that drives my thinking uh, uh, almost every day here. Yeah, well, that's, that's a very good thinking. Don't do any harm, <laughs> just help out. Yes. <laughs> um, and how do you say you generate ideas? Um, I mean, how do you come up with new things? You, you've got an engineering background, so engineers are very creative people. Um, there's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of, uh, there's a process to things as well, um, the way you guys do things. Um, while, for example, on our side, we are journalists. We just throw something out and we see what sticks. Um, but you guys have to be a bit more <laughs> detailed than we are. Um, what's, yeah. um, what's your thought process? 
you know, that's changed and evolved a, a lot, right, over, over my time. You know, when I started out, I was, a, I was a researcher and my job was to be creative, come up with new ideas, write papers, come up with patents, and I did a whole bunch of those. And that is a very different dynamic. It was much more of an individual contributor dynamic, right? Which is, I'm thinking about, hey, is this an interesting problem? Uh, uh, you know, what are all the things I can, uh, I can like come up with? And uh, what are the analogies, right? Have I seen something else in another field that I could actually use and apply in this field? and come up with some new ideas. So for me at that time, optical networking was fairly virgin territory, uh, but networking itself uh, as, a, as a discipline was well-established. And could I take stuff that I had learned about from radio communications and apply it to optical networking? And, and the answer was yes. And that triggered a lot of the ideas uh, in terms of applying concepts from elsewhere into you know, creating some new stuff for, uh, uh, for this new field. But these days, it's very different. And right? I'm not tackling technical problems. I'm tackling, a lot, in a lot of cases, business problems. And the first thing you realize is that you know, as a leader, you, know, you are not necessarily the one to generate all the ideas uh, anymore, right? And in fact, if you're the, the only person generating ideas, that's not a good thing for the team. That's not a healthy dynamic. What you really want to do is to build a great team, listen to them, and invest in ideas they generate, right? But ask the right questions. Ask the right questions of yourself. Ask the right questions of the team. Identify the appropriate problem. A lot of times, you know, people are trying to solve something that's not a problem, uh, right? Uh, they say it's a solution looking for a problem. But identify the appropriate problem and draw upon experience to, to guide people the right way. This will usually lead to generating the appropriate answers, more so than being the person that's creating all the ideas. Hmm. What would you say has been the biggest idea that has come out of a brainstorming session um, that you've chaired to this date? Well, I, I tell you, I think uh, I, you know, many of us go back, way back in time to some of these things, right? And uh, I, I'll say that uh, perhaps very early on in my career, you know, when I was a scientist, we were, you know, we were working on a bunch of fun stuff, creative stuff. And we had a number of brainstorming sessions as to, well, you know, this stuff is great and creative, but it's not solving a real problem, to my earlier point. What is, can we identify a problem? And so we as a bunch of researchers actually brainstormed and we, you know, we, we started talking to some customers potentially. Hey, what problems could we solve for you? Hey, we have this cool technology. We don't know exactly where it fits, but what are, what are some of the things that you're concerned about? And at that point, uh, they came and said, well, look, you know, one of the things that happened at that time, this was in the early 90s, was, hey, uh, we uh, are concerned about disaster recovery. Uh, you know, we're banks, we're, uh, you know, we have a main data center, and if something goes wrong there, and in fact, there had been recently some bombings, you know, there was a World Trade Center bombing in, in uh, 2000, in 19, sorry, when, in 1991, actually, yeah. when somebody drove up in a, in a van and uh, blew up explosives at the bottom of the World Trade Center. Uh, and, uh, and this was way before 9-11. And so people started thinking about disaster recovery. And then we realized that, hey, we had a solution for that, where we could actually use our high-speed networking, optical networks to create disaster recovery solutions. And that was a light bulb. And from then on, a lot of it was a hard execution on, okay, now let's make this real. And uh, so that idea, I think, you know, led to one of the very first commercial products in that area, uh, something that I'm still quite proud of after all these years. So would you say they at least came out of that failed attempt? Well, not failed, but they did carry out the bombing um, in 91 um, at the World Trade Center. That's kind of ignited that idea um, of the brainstorming. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it created wow. a problem, right? It, uh, that opened up people's eyes saying, I need to find a solution for this because I can't be down if something happens here. That yeah. led them to think about disaster recovery. That led them to think about, you know, how could I solve this problem? And then we came in and we were able to help solve the problem. Wow, there's, 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 there's quite something. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, so I was going to ask as well in terms of culture. I mean, you've talked a lot, uh, a lot of what you just what you've been saying. It does fall into culture as well, and how you create the culture of engagement and cooperation um, within a team within a company. Uh, but how would you say what, what's the role of the culture in terms of creating the long term sustained growth that we're all after um, in every business? I think fundamentally, it's it's critical. Uh, it is probably the major reason why people come to work at a company. It's why they build their careers at a company and it's why they stay at a company. Hmm. And uh, so company culture, you know, it's, it's just such a critical thing. And, and for us, I'll tell you, I mean, it's, uh, you know, Nutanix has a, a set of principles, culture principles, uh, like many other good companies. Uh, and our principles are around being honest, being hungry, being humble, and being with heart, right? And, and those resonate. I think those resonate with people and, and we embody that in what we do and how we work with our customers, how we work with our people. And, uh, and it sticks, right? It's enduring as well. And, you know, culture is not something that you change very quickly, right? Mm. It's something that is there. It's, it's part of the, the inner DNA of the company. And uh, it remains for a while and good cultures therefore tend to feed upon themselves and, and grow. And, uh, and so I think this, Therefore, to me, this is one of the most critical things about any company, right? What do you want to be? Uh, and decide what that is. And it's not the same for every company. Uh, we have a set of principles that guide us. And I think that's so critical in, in long-term company success. Yes, and we, it's actually something that we see a lot more, uh, or at least much more open coming from companies in Asia, especially in China, where sometimes we see those companies pushing out the 50, 100-year plan of where they want to go and we look at it from this side of the world and it's quite quite something to look at but it is a good way to do it because at least you know what the journey is in the long term you're not trying to guess what next day is um so that's that's quite interesting i was going to ask you as well because sometimes i mean sometimes things do not go according to plan so sometimes there is a there's a problem i mean either either product fails or the market fails or a client is unhappy um tell us about once where something has gone wrong and how did you spin that situation into a good thing yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of situations. I'll give you some some recent examples. Uh, we had a, a, a large banking customer, uh, okay, who picked us based on a recommendation from a third party, okay, and decided to go invest with us in one of our newer solutions. This was one of our newer cloud solutions. Uh, and they, uh, you know, again, they, they were using us, by the way, for disaster recovery of their enterprise workloads running in their data centers. And uh, as you know, they're a financial services company. So you know, being working together reliably, it's super important. Our product was relatively new at that time when they picked us. Hmm. And they had a number of growing issues, right? I mean, you know, when we first deployed it, it to some extent, I'll be frank and say that the product wasn't fully baked at that time. And there were a number of issues that they encountered. And of course, you know, very early on in their experience, they were not too happy with us. Uh, and then they engaged us, you know, we had a, you know, I met with them, uh, we, we created a monthly cadence and they felt that we listened to them, right? The first thing they appreciated was the fact that we were listening, the entire company was listening and we took up the call. 
you know, we had our senior engineering leaders directly work with them. And, uh, and over the course of the next few months, we made this, we fixed the issues that we had with the product and they became super happy with the capabilities that we were providing and the business value that we were bringing to them. To the point where, you know, a year into the relationship, they came in and they presented to our all hands in terms of, you know, how uh, we had made them successful and how they enjoyed working with us, right? This was a, a situation where we got in, it was initially in a crisis. And then now, if anything, we've built a foundation for a great long-term partnership with this particular customer. I really like it because, I mean, it's two things. One, it's really down to customer service. Um, and yeah. two, it kind of links back to what you said before, listen more, talk less. Um, and then also action while you listen. Um, so that's, that's, that's quite an interesting journey, especially with a banking organization. I, I'm sure it wasn't an easy week or two yes. weeks or a few months. No. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then, Rigid, I was going to ask before we can finish this first part, um, what's something that's non-negotiable to you? What, what is something that in business you've drawn the line and be like, I will not cross this line. If this line gets crossed, we've gone too far. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, it's fundamentally around integrity, hmm. right? Uh, it's integrity. Uh, say what you're going to do, do what you're uh, saying. And, and there is a line, right? For everybody has, uh, it's not just what's considered legal, but it's all there's an ethical and moral compass to everything you do. And, and for me, that's very important. Hmm. Okay, I like that. And this, this is very important. It's missing um, in a lot of companies and other places across the planet, especially right now. Um, as we go through another hard time in our history as human beings. But um, Rajiv, thank you so much for the first part. Before we continue, here's a quick message from our sponsor, Portman Partners. Are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Portman Partners is a unique international executive search firm dedicated to finding the leaders for the digital infrastructure industry. Led by Portman founder and senior partner Peter Hannaford and chairman David Pye, Portman works with clients around the world in the internet and cloud infrastructure sector. Portman has a vast network of contacts around the globe and has placed senior leaders at many of the world's most prestigious organizations in the business. From investors to hyperscale operators, regional colors, designers, construction firms and plant and equipment manufacturers, Portman has the talent and experience required to fill a wide range of C-level and leadership positions. No other executive search firm specializing in the digital infrastructure sectors can match Portman's knowledge, industry expertise, or the worldwide connections needed to conduct efficient and confidential searches that will result in successful placements. If you want to be at the top of your sector, get in touch with Portman, the best in theirs. To learn more and connect with Portman via their websites, visit www.portmanpartners.com. Welcome back to the second part of the Great Business Minds podcast episode with Rajiv Ramaswamy. Let's now move on to the industry itself. And um, Rajiv, so the first part, we talked a lot about you, um, your experience, how you kind of think, what's negotiable, what's non-negotiable, um, bad situations turning into good situations. I could carry on with the lists. People will have listened. If they got to hear, they would have listened to it. Uh, but uh, let's now talk about the industry itself. So not just where Nutanix is, um, not just about Nutanix, but also the industry and then Nutanix. Uh, to begin with, what would you say are the number is the number one issue uh, for cloud entrepreneurs today? Yeah, I think, look, uh, for, uh, from an entrepreneur's perspective, it's about finding your role. Uh, the world is complex, right? If you're in the cloud, it's multiple clouds. Uh, 
So what is your role? How can you help customers live and operate in this world of clouds? And identifying that and having clarity around that is, is critical if you're a cloud entrepreneur. Hmm. Okay. And what would you say is the biggest disruption as well in the markets right now? Yeah, I think, uh, look, I mean, there's multiple disruptions here, right? So in our yeah. own past, I mean, if you go back a little bit, I'm talking about Nutanix now, you know, we saw that, uh, you know, data centers were typically built with separate silos of compute, storage, network, right? Different equipment, different teams to manage all of that. And, in, and what we saw was an opportunity to bring it all together. And this is what Hyperconverge did. Uh, so bring these, you know, bring these disparate things together, you know, put it all together in software, run it on commodity hardware with much smaller teams of people to go manage and simplify all of this, right? Hide all the underlying complexity in software and make it easy for a small team to manage larger states in a software-defined way. Mm. That was a pretty big disruption back 10 years ago. Now, if you look at what's happening in the market, everybody is talking about clouds and operating in clouds. And in some ways, clouds have become the new silos. You have your data center, which itself is a cloud. You have an edge, typically in many customers have edge deployments. Then you have multiple public clouds. And every one of these is a new silo, right? They have used different technologies. They have different sets of services. And if you're a, a company, you need to train your teams to operate across all of these different complex worlds. And that's pretty challenging. That's also disruptive. And you have to figure out how you can be successful in this kind of a world. So would you say that things have become more complex over the, the, the last 10 years? And um, what, what is the role, for, for instance, when it comes to things like edge computing, when we throw that into this mix of what you just said? Yes. I mean, it's just every one of these, by the way, there's good opportunities being created here, right? Why do you, why do you want to go to cloud? Because it allows you to go out there and build and run new applications, which we can talk about later. But there's good opportunities, and that's the reason, right? But at the same time, these opportunities also come and introduce new complexities in terms of how you, to, how you manage. So when you look at edge computing, uh, there's more and more happening that's closer to the edge, right? And, and it varies by industry. Now, if you're a retailer, for example, you might be doing automated checkouts. Right? When somebody takes an item, puts it in their cart, uh, you know, you automatically scan it, you automatically have the bill ready for them when they go. And this is going to require a lot of back-end processing, right? You have to identify the, the item, you've got to price it, you've got to bill it, all of that so that when the customer walks out, it's all automated. Hmm. So that, that's just one example, right? If you're, uh, if you're on a factory floor, you might be getting a lot of data from, uh, from everything that's out there and you may have to do a lot of local analytics on that data. That may be latency sensitive, right? You may not have time to take all the data, send it someplace else, get it analyzed and come, come back. You may have to make some good local decisions. So there's a whole set of new applications coming, right? That require locality of data where a ton of data is being generated on the edge. You know, third-party reports have said now, you know, I think in, in the next few years, more than half the data will be generated at the edge. Hmm. And so you've got to figure out how to process the data, how to handle the data and, and get good analytics out of those. And so that's now creating a whole set of new applications that are uh, you know, running in what I would call edge, right? It's an emerging market. And so you have to deal with that, right? Uh, and how do, how do you then scale and deploy such an environment? And by the way, one of the fundamental issues most people face today is, well, there's not a lot of talent sitting around to help you with all of this, right? Talent is one of the biggest and the most scarce resources, right? Trained talent. 
whether it be developers, whether it be IT staff and operators. So this is where I think, you know, this fundamental mantra of simplification, which, you know, is a core tenet for us uh, as a company, uh, uh, it comes into play, right? You, we want to help make complex things simple. And, and that's going to be a requirement for almost every company as they struggle with talent and dealing with all this complexity. Yeah, I mean, simplicity is the answer. <laughs> has been the answer for, for millenniums and now really yes. is uh, becoming the right answer. But uh, of course, a lot of what you said plays into Nutanix um, and there was already some mentions there. So give us a bit of uh, an overview, like kind of a state of the nation, if you, if you call it state of the company kind um, update. Uh, what, what's going on in Nutanix right now and what geographies are really playing um, in your books right now, because um, you're, you're global. I remember you were created, I think, in 2009, so you're quite quite young. You're a teenager, let's say. But uh, I first got to hear Nutanix, I think the first time was 2015, 16, so, and it has changed a lot since then. So, yeah, I mean, give us your state of the nation <laughs> um, ideal. Sure. Uh, yeah, so at the top level, uh, as we talked about earlier here, uh, we started out by disrupting traditional data center architectures with Hyperconverge, where we brought together these different silos of compute storage and then networking together, right? Uh, now, where we're going as a company is extending the same set of philosophies, right? Which is, you know, fundamentally simplifying infrastructure, providing freedom of choice for our customers and creating a delightful customer experience. Those are the three tenets. And that's how we started out. That's what we applied in the data center. And now we're applying those same three tenets to multi-cloud. So we're moving from, let's call it a hyper-converged uh, infrastructure company to a hybrid multi-cloud company, right? Where we're enabling the same, bringing the same freedom of choice, simplicity, and customer delight to helping customers operate in a world of multiple clouds, NH, as we talked about earlier. Uh, so that's the fundamental direction for the company per se, right? And we're building a software platform, a cloud software platform to enable our customers to do exactly that. Uh, at Nutanix. Now, as we've gone, to, as we go through that, we've created a product portfolio that brings this to life uh, in very simple terms. Yeah, we help customers build clouds. We help customers operate clouds. We help customers manage all their storage needs. We help customers manage all their data databases, right? And help them with hybrid and remote work. These are the solutions that we're taking to market. Very simply solving some of these big problems for our customers while providing them the choice, right? They can run inside the data centers, their applications and data can be anywhere. So, and, and people are gonna have applications and data everywhere, right? Edge, data centers, multiple public clouds. But what we are providing is a constant platform, consistent platform that is available across all of these environments, right? Data center, Edge, AWS, Azure, right? Across public clouds. So that's really uh, at a top level what we're doing from a product perspective. Now there's a few other things we are also doing. Uh, we are also getting through the final stages of our business model transformation. Uh, we started out as a, an appliance company uh, selling appliances. Then we became a software company. And now we are a subscription company where we largely do business with our customers in the form of subscriptions, which again, you know, going provides them with that freedom Right and choice, they can engage with us over whatever period of time that suits them. Right, whether it's a one-year contract, whether it's a three-year contract or a five-year contract, it's up to them. And providing them that flexibility and choice, and, and that's a journey, and that we are now in the process of completing uh, as a company. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And the last bit, by the way, is like you said, we are, you know, you could think of this as being in our second innings or being, you know, as a teenager here. And so for us, it's important also to continue to work with partners and uh, who are, you know, who have scale and who are big in the market who can help us with, uh, with our journey to help delight customers. So we've been working with uh, the hardware OEMs, uh, all the server manufacturers, uh, such as HPE, such as Lenovo, uh, Dell, Fujitsu, et cetera. Uh, we're working with cloud providers such as AWS and Azure. We're working with ecosystem partners. Uh, I would principally point to Red Hat on the one side and Citrix on the other side, where by working together, we can bring holistic solutions to our customers. Hmm. Okay. And picking up, so mixing up two things now, because we talked about how we need to look into where do we want to go? So the journey towards the future, I'm not going to ask about the next 50, hundred years. Don't worry. I think that's too far off, but um, the world is changing a lot. There's a lot of things happening in the, the political sphere, the economic sphere, the technology sphere. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of things happening. How do you see this industry changing in the near long-term future, but especially in the near future? Um, and how is Nutanix going to adapt to that? So a bit of the view of where the company is going as well. Um, in yeah, the I think, uh, look, I think the fundamental view here is every company is going to I think there's no dispute, right? doesn't matter what industry you're in. Uh, you could be in financial services, you could be in healthcare, you could be in defense. Uh, it doesn't matter really, right? But everybody's trying to figure out how to go digital. That's resulting in this massive proliferation of apps. Uh, there's probably going to be more apps built in the next three years than in the last 30 years. Uh, and we're all seeing that, right? As a consumer, you get experience, right? There's an app for everything. And, uh, but what that's fundamentally doing is it's changing out how People need to now, companies are all focused now on how can they manage their apps? How can they build, run, manage their apps and all the data that's associated with these applications. And so that's a big problem for companies, right? And there's gonna be more and more of that. And they're turning to partners and solutions that can help them deal with that issue. And, and this is the fundamental value proposition for what we are helping our customers with, right? Which is providing a platform for them to go manage all of this complexity, right? And hide the underlying complexity and, and enabling them to ultimately, they need to focus on their business value propositions, which is really these apps and data and not have to worry about how to run these things and where they run, right? And that's something that we can take care of and help them simplify that in a dramatic way. The future is near. <laughs> that's what comes yes. to mind. That future uh, is here now. Yeah, it's here, not, not even near, it's here. Um, yes. I was going to ask you, so beyond Nutanix, what else do you do um, in your time. And um, I always find fascinating to know what people do um, with their time outside of the, 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 the HQ. Yeah, look, I mean, I think uh, obviously I've got my recreational activities, but beyond that, there's probably one thing that I do, which is I, I have been quite active with a charity for quite a while now. Uh, I serve on that board. It's, just, it's a small charity. It's called One School at a Time. Uh, and what okay. we do is we build, we build schools uh, largely in uh, rural India. Uh, right, so we build school buildings, uh, and then we work with the local government to make sure that that those schools are staffed and run, and uh, it's free education. Uh, so we've built about seventy schools so far over the last many years. Uh, we continue to build about ten, fifteen schools a year, uh, and uh, it's a completely volunteer-run organization. So, uh, uh, and, and we've got the formula now for how to go about doing this. Right, we started out fairly small, and now we, like I said, now we're building ten to fifteen schools, which is quite a big step for us from the point where we were building maybe one school a year. 
Uh, and so that takes up uh, uh, some, some portion of my time and it's more of a personal passion uh, for me uh, outside of work. Oh, that, that's an amazing passion. Well done, because um, that, that's very needed. Um, especially markets like, like that to really bring the talent out because there's so much talent. So um, we, we keep hearing that the next Microsoft and Google is going to come out of India. So and maybe we'll come out of one of your schools. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I look, it's just fundamentally for, for these people, right? I mean, I, I grew up, yeah, for me and my family, education was viewed as the primary thing, right? You had to have a good education because that would unlock doors for you. Hmm. And, and, that, and I truly believe in that, right? Because education is what got us all here. And so you want to give that gift back, right? You want to allow people to get that education because once they're there, then that's going to enable them. Like you said, you know, maybe they'll be build the next Microsoft or Google or, you know, create the next whatever creative thing they do and uh, it's just I think it just opens the doors and just getting and, and by the way in this in this whole field of education there's a big pyramid uh, right there's pyramid where you have the top you know elite colleges at the very top doing advanced degrees and for me personally it's about that very base of the pyramid right the base of the pyramid where it's just providing people who could not even go to school otherwise an ability to go to school and get them you know to be on the playing field uh, right. And then after that, at least that, you know, you enable that. And then after that, they can go build up right uh, into that pyramid. So there's no right or wrong there. But for me personally, it's, it's that bottom of the pyramid that we're trying to make a dent in. Yeah, which is very important because it's really just opening the door um, for them to create their own life. But sometimes people just need that door opened um, for them. So that it's I mean, that's, that's very honorable. <laughs> um, but uh, and then Rajiv, a few questions now, kind of housekeeping questions that we usually ask. Sure. What, what would be one thing that you would have done differently um, over the last few years if you could go back in time? Yeah, I would say perhaps be even more active in building out my network. Hmm. Uh, I realized the value of that somewhat later in my career. You know, when I started my career, nobody told me about that, right? Nobody told me build your network or make your connections or anything like that. Uh, but I realized as I went along in my career, how, how important that was. Uh, how it enabled me to get, you know, my next role or how it enabled me to build teams. And uh, so if I had to say something, I think you, you start doing that. I tell that to my kids, you know, and they're, they're very good at doing this, right? They're, you know, <laughs> early in their careers and, and they're building out their network um, far more effectively than I did when I was at their age. Uh, and I think that's, that's super important. Yeah, but it's also probably easier to build it nowadays with all the social media. Of course, um, it's changed a lot. But uh, and then, Rajiv, so what would be one of the best and the worst advices you've ever received in life? I can't think of the worst advice, but I can think of a lot <laughs> of advice that I've received. Uh, so one, one, you know, I, I tell you one fundamental piece of good advice, which I live up to when I, I try to uh, follow all the time is never be afraid of stretching yourself and taking on new challenges. Yeah, people can look at this. You can look at it as a risk or you can look at it as an opportunity. And, and for me, I've always looked at it as an opportunity. And, and thanks to, you know, perhaps, you know, there's just a lack of fear. There's a lack of uh, saying, what do you have to lose? And, uh, and the way that works for me is to say, look, when I take something on uh, that's different, I, I like to do that. First, because I learned something, right? If you do something new, you're going to learn and you're going to stretch yourself. And that's a good thing. And for me, if I don't do that, by the way, after doing the same thing for several years, I'd want to change, right? I want to do something different where I am stretched. But at the same time, you want to pick something that's not so far out, right? For example, for me, trying to do a consumer business, I think that's a little bit way out of my league, right? I don't know enough about it. But something that's adjacent, where you can bring the skills you already know to bear, right? So you have to be like, it. yes, 
it's got to be adjacent in some form or fashion where you can bring all the stuff you know and put it to good use. But at the same time, it's going to stretch you and do something new. And, and that, you know, if you can find that formula and you can actually constantly keep doing that during your career, I think that's a great thing. And I've done that and I've never looked back and regretted every step of that uh, journey. Yeah, no, that, that, that's amazing. I mean, it brings some spontaneity as well and um, it makes up, it makes things up a little bit. Um, and I think what you said, it's, it's a very important point to make, which is don't go for something that probably it's too far-fetched, too far off um, for yourself. Go for something that's within reach, but different, challenging. Because um, I think sometimes you do see people trying to go a completely new route. Um, and then which usually sometimes there's not work and then people just get in a bad place. Um, so it's quite important to also know how to measure how far to push things. Um, and then last question is, you've already kind of mentioned the Book of Joy and you, you've said um that, that advice that quoting the advice but I, was gonna, I always ask this anyway to close um our conversation is what is your favorite quote by who and why oh boy i've got several but i have to pick one here. <laughs> you can give uh, two if you want <laughs> i'll give you one uh i'll give you one that's kind of business related right i mean i think there's a lot of personal like the book of joy gives you a lot of personal uh you know things that i live up to but uh but from a business perspective andy grove of course who was uh, a chairman at intel uh, had a lot of good quotes one of his quotes was Success builds, uh, breeds uh, complacency, and complacency breeds failure. And, and then he goes on to say, only the paranoid survive. Uh, now, that's so true in tech, uh, I have to say, because one of the big things for me is, you know, every good tech, every tech company starts out with one idea, and they probably come to the map, get on the map, because of one good thing that they do. But the great ones actually endure and they endure by constantly challenging themselves, constantly adapting and constantly pointing to the future and directing themselves to change. If you don't do that, right, and you just sit on your laurels with the one thing that you've done, then eventually you will fail, right? And there's a number of tech companies that have gone down that route, right? They're like, you know, they're like a shooting star. They come up, they do great for a little bit, and then they're gone, right? Then they're uh, written off. Uh, and the good ones, I mean, the great ones actually endure by constantly adapting. And those are the ones that uh, go on to endure. So I think from that perspective, Andy's message is very much on target, right? You have to constantly think about where to go and what to be doing. And don't just sit on what you've got. Yeah, I, I, told, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I mean, and we see things, those things now happening so fast. Um, I mean, maybe in the old days, it would take 50 years to see a company fail. Um, now it literally takes five months um, yes. after having success. So it really is important for people to keep updating and, and constantly learning and launching new things um, and becoming involved with the markets. But uh, well, Rajiv Razmawami, um, thank you so much for coming on the GBM podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. Um, it's definitely been an insightful conversation. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the Great Business Minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms. You can find the links in the podcast description. Thank you again to our sponsor, Portman Partners, the leading executive search firm for the digital infrastructure sector. Portman finds the talent you need to protect and enrich your assets. They get it right the first time, every time. Do subscribe to the podcast and we invite you back again for the next episode of the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure, the Great Business Minds podcast. See you then.